Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. As we go into the month of July, there will be some changes in our English Unity in Christ program. A new program titled The Good News of the Gospel will be starting as If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me Has Now Come to an End. This new program will guide us as we learn more about the true meaning of the gospel. Please stay tuned for this new program. It is fun to watch a group of toddlers playing together and see how cute they are. But there is something very interesting that happens while these children are playing together. When one child cries out loud looking for his or her mother, the other children also begin to cry. searching for their moms. I think maybe that watching the one child crying out for his or her mother reminds the other children of their mothers as well. But did you know that there is a terminology to describe this phenomenon where one child's emotion transfers to the other children? I had no idea that such thing existed, but scholars call this phenomenon emotional contagion. Emotional contagion is the phenomenon of having one person's emotions and related behaviors directly trigger similar emotions and behaviors in other people. When people subconsciously mirror their companions' expressions of emotion, they come to feel reflections of those emotions. John Cazioppo, a doctor in psychology, stated through his experiment that there is a higher percentage of feelings of loneliness, depression, and fear to be transferred to others compared to feelings of happiness and elation. To put it simply, it is easier for people to take on feelings of sadness and fear from other people than feelings of happiness. After reading about his studies, I thought to myself that it was actually true. I think that it is easier for one person that is sad in a room full of people to lead everyone else in the room to feel gloomy than have one happy person to make everyone else feel happy. It's easier to get a room full of people to complain about something than to have them agree on something as well. Have any of you been in this situation? Have you had someone else's emotions transferred onto you? After hearing the phenomenon about emotions transferring from person to person, it reminds me of a story in the Bible. It is a story where God sends the quails to the Israelites in Numbers chapter 11. I'm sure that all of you know the story as well. This is when the Israelites began to complain to Moses, thinking about the food they'd had in Egypt, like fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. They were tired of eating only manna and longed for what they enjoyed before fleeing Egypt. They stopped being thankful for the food that was being provided to them. At first, they said that the manna was delicious and tasted like pastries baked with olive oil, but after some time, they began to complain that manna was the only thing that they were given to eat. They cried out that they wanted to eat meat, and that they longed to live as slaves back in Egypt when they were able to eat a wide variety of food. God became extremely angry at the people for this selfish longing. They were forgetting how He had saved them from slavery. God sent a wind that brought quail from the sea 
and let them fall all around the camp. For miles in every direction, there were quail flying about three feet above the ground. The Israelites were so busy collecting all the quail that they did not thank the Lord for providing the meat they had asked for. They did not think about why God had sent them all this quail. They were all just busy collecting all the quail that they could get their hands on. The people went out and caught quail for two days straight, and no one gathered less than 50 bushels. They set the quail to dry in order to preserve the meat for the days to come. When they finally put the quail into their mouths, while the quail was still in their mouths, God was very angry with the people and struck them with a severe plague. Now, let's go back and focus on Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. It says, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Let me read the same verse in more modern translation. Then, the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. The ones that started all this complaining were the foreigners that were among the Israelites. They had the greedy desires for other kinds of food than what they were given. It was the foreigners that lived among the Israelites that complained about the situation that they were in now. And it was the complaints and the emotions of the foreigners that transferred onto the Israelites that began this whole situation with the quails.
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Choose to Live, Part 2, based on Deuteronomy Chapter 6. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Do you see where this is going? Even with our choice, based on our responsibility to repent and believe in Christ, when you stop and think about it, you realize that the only reason you're saved is because a sovereign God has saved you. Charles Spurgeon writes similarly, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. I thought I sought, and though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received these truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan said, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I would made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all the clue to the truth of God. And here's how he describes it. One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon. I love that. Just pure honesty. Something you can identify with and I can identify with as well. He said, the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, well, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all that he was the author of my faith. And so the doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Spurgeon went on to say, I believe this because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. He must have chosen me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept this great biblical doctrine. Oh, Christians in this room, can't you identify with this? No Christian congratulates himself or herself on their conversion. We don't say, I saved myself. We say, I was saved. We say, God saved me. God did this in my life. Malcolm Muggeridge, follower of Christ, said, however far and fast I've run, still over my shoulder, I'd catch a glimpse of you on the horizon. Then I'd run faster and farther than ever, thinking triumphantly, now I've escaped. But no, there you were, coming after me. There was no escape. He said, I've never wanted a God or feared a God or felt under any necessity to invent one. Unfortunately, I'm driven to the conclusion that God wants me. And why does God want you? Why does God want you? The answer is not because of anything in you, but solely because of his love for you. This is humbling, isn't it? Yet it's so clear. Deuteronomy teaches with abundant clarity that God is sovereign over all things, including his people's salvation. History, salvation, and He's sovereign over every nation. Deuteronomy 7 continues, based on God's sovereign grace to assure the people of Israel of his guidance as they go into the land. He's going to lead them into the promised land. They will overtake the nations who are there because God's sovereign over those nations. He's in control of them. Remember, this is why we read it just a second ago. The 
previous generation disobeyed God because they didn't believe God could defeat the nations in the promised land. They didn't trust in the sovereign power of God over those nations. And so in this review of the game plan, God says to them, look at chapter 7, verse 17. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh in all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Oh, see it, church. See it, people of God in this room today. This is the Lord we love, the one who is all sovereign, sovereign over all history, sovereign over our salvation, sovereign over every nation. And follow this. Because God is all sovereign, it necessarily follows that he is worthy of all surrender. Because God is all sovereign, he is worthy of all surrender. He has authority over all things, right? History, nations of the earth, even your salvation. It necessarily follows that he has authority over your life and my life. Which is exactly what we see throughout Deuteronomy. This command in Deuteronomy 6.5 to love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind is accompanied by other commands to worship God. Deuteronomy 8.19, don't turn aside to worship other gods. Worship the one true God. To love him is to worship him. To worship him with holy fear. Did you hear that in chapter 6, verse 2? That you may fear the Lord your God. Chapter 6, verse 13, it's the Lord God you shall fear. Verse 24, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. I love that. Fear God for your good. Oh, see application of this to your life. Worship him with fear for, well, what does the rest of the Bible say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Of wisdom. Anybody need wisdom in this room? Anybody need some wisdom in marriage? Anybody need some wisdom in parenting? Anybody need wisdom in relationships? Anybody need some wisdom at your workplace? Anybody need some wisdom in big decisions you may be facing in your life? You need wisdom? You want wisdom? It starts with fearing God. It starts to so go to the root here, the core. You won't have wisdom if you don't fear God. Love Him. Worship Him with holy fear. And serve Him with wholehearted obedience. Back again to chapter 6, verse 13. It's the Lord God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. Chapter 10, verse 12 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him. Then it says to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So use that language, heart and soul. Serve him and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Again, for your good. Serve God with wholehearted obedience for your good. This is what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, and might. To see that he's all sovereign over all things, including your salvation. He set his affection on you. And so to respond with the surrender of your life. To worship him in holy fear and to serve him with wholehearted obedience. This is, this is the essence of what it means to relate to God. And I am zealous for you not to miss it. For me not, for us not to miss this. We are so 
prone in this culture to go through our routines amidst the busyness of our lives, all the things we need to do, including coming to church and doing this and doing that. And if we are not careful, our love for God can grow cold. Can it? Your love for God can grow cold. I'm, I'm guessing that there are many people in this room right now whose love for God has grown cold even though you've been a Christian for many years, it's, it's more mechanical and monotonous than it is fueled by affection and passion for God. And if that's you in particular, hear God saying to you through his word as a Christian, I hope in a fresh way that sinks deep into your heart right where you are sitting. Hear God saying, I love you. I love you. You say, why? He says, because I love you. I've set my affection on you. This is God speaking. God, God of the universe, sovereign of all history, saying to you right where you say, I set my affection on you. And I want your good. And your good is found in setting your affection on me. The word of God is saying to us today very clearly, love him, love him, love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Worship him with holy fear and serve him with wholehearted obedience for our good always, for our good. That's why I'm zealous for this to be a reality in my life, this to be a reality in your life, our life together as a church, because God says this is, this is good for us. It's a central command in Deuteronomy. And it's taken most of our time this morning, I believe, for a good reason. Let me just list three other primary commands that accompany it. We'll go through these quickly, all based back in Deuteronomy 6. So one, love the Lord. Two, hear the law. Second commandment, hear the law. Deuteronomy 6, 4 begins with, hear, O Israel. Just like verse 3, it said, hear therefore, O Israel. Listen, 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 hear this. That's exactly what this book is about. It's about the people of God listening to the word of God. The whole book is framed with people listening to God's word coming through Moses. Chapter 6, verse 6 says, These words that are commanded here should be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hands. They will be as frontlets between your eyes. You just write them on the doorposts of your house, on your gates. So put them everywhere. This is so interesting. God does not tell his people to make an image of himself to focus on. Instead, he says, write down my words and put them everywhere because my words will reveal to you who I am. 
That's what these laws are in general ways at the start, including a restatement of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and then in more specific ways throughout the bulk of the center section of Deuteronomy. We see laws from God that individually and collectively come together to reveal who He is and how He relates to His people. And when we read these laws in light of this command to love God that we just saw, we begin to realize that the law of God in Deuteronomy is not intended to be a burden to bear. Nor is God's law intended to be a means of merit. That's the whole point we just saw in God's sovereign salvation. Israel's standing before God was not based on their merit, but on His mercy. And by His mercy, so see this, God had already set them apart as His people. They belonged to Him. They were His people, holy people, treasured possessions, set apart by God. And so as that people, this is how they were to live. So in this way, we need to see that the law of God here is not a burden for the people to bear. It's not a means of merit. The law of God is a gift of grace. He doesn't leave his people in the dark regarding how they're to live in relationship to them, how they're to experience such good, how they're to love him and worship him and serve him and obey him. He clearly, specifically outlines how they are to relate to him and to each other for their good. Oh, do you see this gift of grace even right now in your life, Christian brother or sister? With the book you hold in your hand, the Bible is not a burden to bear, nor is it a means of merit. The Bible is a gift of grace. In Christ, church, we have been set apart by God, and He has not left us. He's not left you. He's not left me, us. He's not left us in the dark when it comes to how to relate to Him and to each other. He's given us His Word, and He's given it to us for our good. Do you realize what a treasured possession we have in the law of God? So listen to it. Listen to it. Put these words in your heart. Hide them in your heart, as we're going to read about even this week in Psalm 119. Teach them diligently to your children. Teach these words systematically and intentionally to your children. Talk about it all the time. When you sit down in your house, when you're walking along the way, post them in all kinds of places. Hear the law. Which then leads to the third primary command in Deuteronomy. Take the land. It's very simple. Love the Lord. Hear the law. Take the land. Obviously, behind all these commands is a context. God is telling his people how to live in a place. The land that he's promised to them. We read in Deuteronomy 6, verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you in the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities. It's described as flowing with milk and honey back in verse 3. Deuteronomy 11 says it's a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And, and that language is key because God is talking about his presence and his provision in a powerful way in this land, which is what makes this land so great and good. God's presence is there. God's provision is there in a particular way. Remember that God's greatest gift that he gives to his people is what? It's himself. And that's what makes this land so special because God will dwell among his people in a powerful way there. That's why you see language all over Deuteronomy talking about the place where God will make his name dwell among his people. The place where God will choose to dwell among his people. Uh, I wish we had more time to dive into this. But just suffice to say, this land was an earthly inheritance for the people of God. So it was a literal land where God would dwell in a powerful way among his people. But even this earthly inheritance was established by God to foreshadow an eternal home that awaits all of God's people. Oh, I love Pastor Jim's sermon on Psalm 95 a couple of weeks ago. And the picture of rest 
there in the beginning of Hebrews and how we can enter into God's rest by fulfilling the purpose of God's presence in our lives now as we look toward the future. And this is the way the Bible later describes those patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Moses, in the end of Hebrews. In their lives, Hebrews 11 says, they made it clear that they were seeking a homeland, but listen to the homeland they were seeking ultimately. They desired a better country that is a heavenly one. And going on to Moses and other men and women in the Old Testament, Hebrews 11, 39 through 40 says, all these, though committed through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Oh, I love this. Even in the song we were singing earlier, by faith, talking about those who've gone before us by faith, even in going into the promised land, they were looking for another land, a heavenly one, and don't miss it. What is it that makes heaven so glorious? It's the fact that God dwells there in a powerful, perfect way. The whole picture we have of heaven in the Bible. And at the end, Revelation 21 is a place where God is dwelling perfectly among his people. So even this earthly inheritance of a promised land in Deuteronomy, what we're read about in Joshua and Judges in the days ahead is only a foreshadowing of an eternal home for the people of God. Where everybody who's turned from themselves and trusted in him will dwell with God forever. And that leads ultimately to the last primary command in Deuteronomy. So love the Lord, hear the law, take the land, and finally, choose life. Choose life. And this is where I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30, which I mentioned earlier. This is a passage we're actually going to read this week in our Bible reading, but I want to go ahead and look forward to it by reading the last 10 verses of it now. So this is, this is the end of Moses' last speech in Deuteronomy. And this is what he says, verse 11. End of his last speech. And these are his words. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will send to heaven for us and bring it to us? We may hear and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us? We may hear and do it. But the word is very near is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. In verse 15, this is the conclusion. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But, if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Oh, what a conclusion. And there's so much we could say here, but don't, let me just point out the obvious. God is not the only one doing the choosing in Deuteronomy. He commands his people to choose him. And again, there's mystery here, but there's even an urgency to this command. It's as if God is speaking to every single person, and individual Israelite, and then all of Israel collectively. And he's saying, you have a choice to make. And the choice is simple. It's clear. You can turn away from God. 
And in so doing, you can choose death and evil. Or you can put your trust in God. And in so doing, you can choose life and good. Now, what happens next in Deuteronomy is, is really strange. Because right after this, in chapter 31 and 32, God instructs Moses to write a song that testifies to the fact that God's people will choose to disobey him. In other words, God tells Moses to write a tune about how once they get into the land, they're going to choose death. They're not going to follow the game plan. Can you imagine that conversation between a coach and his team on Friday night before the football game on Saturday? Okay, we've recounted the game plan. Now, I've written a little song that I want to sing to you guys, and the song is all about how you're not going to follow the game plan we just outlined, and as a result, you're going to lose the game. And then to make matters worse, we realize that the coach who's recounting the game plan, Moses here, is not even going to be at the game. What's going on here? Like Moses, because of his anger toward the people and his distrust of God, back in Numbers, in one particular instant, God told him that as a result of his sin then, he would not enter the promised land now. Chapter 34, God takes Moses up to Mount Nebo. I've stood there before. I can only imagine standing there. You can see the whole land of Canaan in front of you, starting with the city of Jericho right there in front of you. So God takes him up there. God shows him the land and says, you can't go in. And then Moses dies. And that's, that's how the book ends. Moses dies. Why? Because he's a sinner. Because he's a sinner. Even though he was a prophet, he couldn't escape the sin that plagued his own heart. And because of his sin, this prophet Moses was unable to pay for Israel's sin. Which leads to a depressing end to Deuteronomy. A nation of rebellious sinners about to enter into the promised land where they would inevitably rebel against God in their sin. And the book ends with their leader in his sin, the prophet of God, dying. But amidst the sadness, let me just show you three semblances of hope. Really quick, just three verses. You've got to see these. The first is Deuteronomy 32, 43. Look at it with me. Chapter 32, verse 43. So at the end of Moses' song, listen to the last verse, last line in the song. Deuteronomy 32, 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children, takes vengeance on his adversaries. Then listen to this last line. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Now, if you're reading the ESV, you'll, you'll get some numbers like in your, <coughs> in your Bible, in that verse right there that take you to the bottom because there's notes there. And said so this could be translated, God atones for his people's land or atones for his land and his people. Some other translations like the NIV say, God will make atonement for his land and his people. So here at the end of this song, it's talking about people of Israel are going to disobey. We've got this promise that that's, that's not the end of the story. It's not the final word. God is going to make a way to atone for his people's rebellion, to provide for their cleansing. So that's one semblance of hope. And then keep turning back to the left. Go back to Deuteronomy 30, which we read just a second ago, starting in verse 11. But look back at verse 6 before that. Verse 6, Deuteronomy chapter 30. God's talking about bringing his people into the land. And verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. In other words, God says, I'm going 
I'm going to bring about a change in your heart that will cause you to love me. That's semblance of hope. And then the last one, Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is the last place we'll turn. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Because all this, we just read, these symbols of hope beg the question, how? How is that going to happen? How is God going to atone for his people's sin? And how is God going to change his people's hearts? And the answer is promised back in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Read what Moses says there. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. I'll see it right here in the middle of Deuteronomy. We have a promise of another prophet to come. A prophet who is different from Moses. Moses was a good leader, but he was a sinful leader, leading a sinful people. And as a result, he was unable to atone for Israel's sin. He was unable to change their hearts. He was unable to represent the word of God perfectly to the people. But one day, another prophet would come who would perfectly represent and reveal the word of God to his people. He would not sin once. He would never rebel against God. And as a result, he would be uniquely able to pay the price for sinners. Oh, don't miss it. The prophet Moses was unable to pay for Israel's sin, but the greater prophet, Jesus Christ, is uniquely able to pay for our sin. This is the good news of the gospel, even here in Deuteronomy. Non-Christian friend, we invite you in particular to hear this this morning. Hear this. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of who he is. And he has lived a sinless life. And though he never sinned, though there was no sin to warrant the curse of God, death in his life, he died. And the reason he died is to provide salvation for sinners. Romans chapter 3 says that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, which means that God poured out the death due sinners on his son so that sinners like you and me could be saved. To use language from Deuteronomy, even what we read this morning, Christ took the curse of sin on our behalf in our place so that sinners like you and me who do not deserve God's blessing can receive it. And this prophet changes the ball game altogether. Because follow this, Jesus makes it possible to carry out the game plan. For when we repent and we believe in Christ, when we turn from our sin and put our trust in him, he enables us to love the Lord. He changes our hearts. He puts a new heart, a new spirit inside of us that now desires God, that loves God, that longs for God. He enables us to do what Deuteronomy commands us to do, to love the Lord. And he gives us a new law. He inaugurates a new covenant based on his words that he speaks for our good. So we obey the commands of Christ, not as a burden to bear or a means of merit, but as a gift of grace. God has shown us how to relate to him through faith in Christ. And so we joyfully walk in his ways. He enables us to love the Lord. To, he gives us a new law. He leads us into a new land. Before he left the earth, he told the people of God, now go 
all its followers. Make the love of God known among the nations. Don't go to war against the nations. Instead, give your life to winning the nations with the love of Christ. Think about what we heard earlier in announcement time. Information meeting today for anybody interested in going to New York to proclaim the gospel among Turks who we've prayed for over the last month. We're going into new lands after new peoples all led by Christ. And we say to people there, peoples everywhere, God loves you. God has sent his son to die for sinners and for all who trust in him, he will give eternal life. So choose life. This is the invitation for every single person in this room. Every every single person in this room has a choice. You have a choice. Right where you're sitting, you have a choice today. You can turn away from God. And in so doing, choose evil and death. Or you can put your trust in God. And in so doing, choose good and life. Can I urge you to choose life? If you've never put your faith in God today to trust in what Jesus has done to cover over your sins, to enter into a relationship, a love relationship with God, the God who created you, and to find life in following His good law. And for all who have trust in Christ, who are in relationship with God, love the Lord. Choose every day to live in love with all your heart, your soul, and your might given over toward him. Love the Lord. Hear his law every day. May it be central in your life. Just put it everywhere. Fill your mind, fill your heart with his law. And take the land. Go and make disciples here this week. Go and make disciples of all nations in the days ahead, all in anticipation of the day when the sovereign God who saves will gather men and women from every nation around his throne in an eternal home where we will dwell with him and he will dwell with us forever. Choose life today. Choose life every day. Choose to love him, listen to him, to worship him with holy fear, serve him with wholehearted obedience. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to make it possible through his body and through his blood for you and I to have a life and for you and I to be in a love relationship with the God of the universe.
am so glad I learned to trust Him. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that He is with me, will be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I prove Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him
Heart and Soul Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Following is the program called The Good News of the Gospel. Heart and Soul listeners, my name is Young and Winston, and you are now listening to a new program that began in July, Gospel, the Goodness. Hello, and my name is Brian Winston. Yes, the new program called the Gospel, the Goodness. I think the program will be about the Gospel from the title. The listeners will understand better if you explain what the program will be about. Absolutely. The Gospel, the Good News, is the title of the program. The word gospel is one of the words that we Christians use most often. Gospel can be seen as the main ideology in Christianity, but when I come across fellow believers and ask the meaning of gospel, there are many people that cannot give me an answer. It's not that they don't know the meaning of the word, it's that they are not able to expand upon the meaning. You're right. Honestly, it shouldn't be that way. But if someone were to ask me, what is the gospel? It is very difficult to sum up the answer into few words. It's hard to even know where to begin. That's right. If someone asks, what's the gospel? It's hard to say gospel means. It isn't something that is explained easily in a few words. There are many people that answer, the gospel is the good news. But it's not that simple. One cannot explain the meaning of the gospel as simply the good news. There's so much more that goes into the meaning. Of course. If you look at the word gospel, it literally translates into goodness or good story. But more information is needed to explain the complete meaning of the word. Yes, you are correct. The goal of this program will be to learn the real meaning of good news and what the gospel really is. I have personally come across some Christians that when asked, what is the meaning of the gospel? They answer, the Bible, Jesus, church. Of course, these aren't wrong answers, but they're not completely correct answers either. Well, it seems to me that they answered your question with a word that they knew or a word that they were able to relate to the gospel. That's why I want to take the time today to explain what the gospel truly is. We'll spend some time discussing what it is that we believe, why we need to believe, and what it means to believe. This will be very important because it allowed us to go back and study the very basics of our faith. I'm very excited and looking forward to learning the complete meaning of what the gospel is. Yes, I also want to take the opportunity to learn and study more while preparing for this program. 
The name of the program is Gospel, the Good News. Gospel is not just good news. It says that it is the good news. This shows that it is a certain type of good news. In reality, there are many types of good news. For example, when a man marries a woman, that would be an example of good news. Yes. Also, if one receives an acceptance letter from a college that they wanted to attend, that would be a good news, right? Yes, that would be very good news. Also, to find out that you are pregnant after waiting for a long time or to find out that you are no longer sick from the disease would be great news as well. There are so many examples. That's why we're going to learn not just about the examples of good news we just shared, but about the good news. So we're not talking about the personal good news, but the good news, right? If you think about it, some good news can be good news to just certain people. The same news can be sad news to others. For example, the good news about our team winning can be sad news to the other competing teams. If a married couple has a baby, that would be very good news. But if you hear of a 10-year-old girl having a baby, like in the news, that would definitely not be good news, but a horrible and terrifying story. You're right. All good news cannot be good news to everyone. Then is what we are talking about today, the good news. Good news to everyone? Yes. The gospel, Jesus' good news, is good news to everyone. But the problem is that people do not understand why this good news is actually good news. It's not that they do not know. It's that they do not understand and relate to it. Well, there are times when you're trying to share the gospel, but they seem more anger by what they just heard. It's weird that these people react this way when they are giving the good news. That's why I was saying some people do not know what the good news really is. That is why I often say, for the good news to become good news, there must be sad news that comes first. For the good news to be good news, there must be a sad news first. That seems right, because one must know what sad news is first, so that when they receive the good news, they will know why it is a good news. And when we give the good news to others, we often say, believe in Jesus, then you will go to heaven. Believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. Because we give the good news to the people first. The good news is not taught correctly to the people. Does the real meaning disappear because the main character was introduced too early? The main character was introduced too early. That is a very appropriate statement. Like you explained earlier, for the good news to become good news, sad news or bad news has to be a given first. Now, can you explain to us what this sad news is? Absolutely. But the sad or bad news you're speaking of is not a simple thing to explain. I'll try to explain it briefly. First, everyone will die and will receive eternal punishment. But I must also explain why a person will die, why they will receive the eternal punishment. This is why we will take the first few hours to talk about this sad and bad news. I think that this sad and bad news will be very important in explaining what the gospel is. Yes, it's very, very important. 
When the sad news is sad to us, and the bad news becomes more and more bad news to us, the good news will become more good to us, and that is why this is so important. The two are very proportional. Yes, it is. Now let's start our topic on the good news of the gospel. So young, it's been about twenty years since you started learning about Jesus. You must have had many questions in the beginning. Yes, I had so many questions. I really had a question about everything. Why did Adam and Eve listen to the snake? Why did they eat the forbidden fruits? Then why did the all-knowing God make the forbidden fruit tree? If God had not made the tree, wouldn't there have been no fall? My questions started out like this: Why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't there have been any other way? Why doesn't God take us right away? If we are saved, because the whole point of saving us is to take us into heaven. I had so many questions. Yes, I remember. You really did have many questions, but it is very normal for us to have these kinds of questions. These kinds of questions arise automatically. The reason these questions arise in us is that there is a limit in our aspect of thinking. A limit in our aspect of thinking? What does that mean? Us humans are very limited beings. Many times, people believe that we are able to achieve anything. But that's not true. We are not free under God's rule. Can you give me an example? For example, let's think about the law of gravity. We are not free from the law of gravity, because we live under this law. We constantly have to plant our feet to the ground. This means that we cannot fly. If we jump high into the air, don't we fall right back to the ground? Yes, of course, that is true. Also. We're not free from the law of time. We cannot add time or make it move faster. We all live thoroughly under the law of time. Yes, that is also very true. Because of time, we all increase in age and live out our lives for a period of time and die. Yes, what I'm trying to tell you now is, we are such finite beings, meaning we are terminal beings. And since we are such terminal beings, it is very hard for us to understand the works, thoughts, plans of our infinite God. Oh, so you are saying that because we are finite beings, it's reasonable for us to wonder or have a question when it comes to our infinite God? Yes, that's correct. That is what I wanted to explain before we began. Now let's think about this. We are living today. At this present time, correct? That's right. But if you think about it, we are not living in the present. So, what do you mean when you say we are not living in the present now? We are living in the present. Yes. Think about it. What is your definition of the present time that you are living in? Now. But the now that you just spoke of is now in the past. This is because time never stops and moves constantly. Oh, that's what you meant. Yes, if you look at it that way, then we don't really have something called the present time. That is correct. We do not have something called the present. 
We only have the future and the past. Time never stops and moves constantly. But who created this time? Time? God created time. In Genesis chapter 1, after God separated light and darkness, there was evening and there was morning, and this was one day. Isn't that when time was created? That's right. That is how time began. Then, did God become limited to this time? No, God doesn't have any limits. That is correct. God is not limited by the time that He has created. All the creatures created in Genesis chapter 1 are now living under that time that God created. That is why we do not have present time, but only the past and the future. But to God, there is no past or the future. God is always present, always now. This is explained in the Bible. Can you read Revelation chapter 4, verse 8? Of course. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. It is saying that God was there, is there, and is going to come, right? Yes. Have you heard this before? Yes. I have heard this many times before. Also, I think I have heard similar phrase that is. The same yesterday and today and forever. It's great that you point that out. It is from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. One of the meanings of this verse is God is not affected by time. He lives outside of time and He is the one that created time. This is very important for people like us who are finite beings. To understand in order to know and understand God's plans. I think that people like us, with a limited understanding of our limitless God, have to change our way of thinking when it comes to time. Yes, if we begin to understand this aspect of time and read the Bible, we can begin to understand the parts that we have not understood before. Because we did not know this aspect, There are many times that we understand the Bible incorrectly. For example, many people think in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But because of crime and corruption of people, God's plans were ruined. And God tried to fix these wrongs of the people and ended up sending his son to fulfill his plan. Yes, I also thought that way as well. Why did our all knowing God begin this work? He would have known. Couldn't he have stopped it? These kind of thoughts came to my mind, but I couldn't get the clear answers for these kind of questions. Yes, this is what we're going to tackle in our first lesson today. As mentioned before, we have limits when it comes to time. That is, we question why God, who knows what will happen tomorrow, Doesn't stop the bad things from happening. We have a clue to what will happen in the future. So, why does God let it happen? Why is that? Because we know the past, we can ask, 
Why did he do that? But we also ask that question because we do not know that future. This can be very confusing, but it will be easy to understand if you think really hard about it. God who lives outside of time does not predict what will happen to us in the future. He does not predict, but to him, all those things have already happened. It is just that for us who live under time, those things have not happened yet, but will happen in the future. In God's time, all those things have already occurred, and God has seen it all. This is a very important point to understand. Again, what is written in Revelations is not a prediction of the future, but it is written because God is telling us about what He has seen happen. That is why the content of it cannot change, and it will definitely happen just like all the things in the past written in the Bible occurred. The future will happen also. If we had God's power and knew what was going to happen in the future, we wouldn't ask, why did he let that happen? We would say, that is why that had to happen. I see. So what is the future to us has already happened to God, who is not affected by time. Like you say before, our all-knowing God, if He began all this with knowing the future, then He must have a reason and plan for all this. For us to understand God's plan, we must look at it from God's perspective and time. Yes, reading the Bible through God's perspective, that is a very needed statement. Our perspective, it is important for us to see things from our perspective as well. But if we learn to see it from God's perspective, then we will come to understand why it had to be this way. That is why next time we will take a closer look at Genesis and talk about what kind of plan God had when he began all this work. Yes. Today was our first lesson. I thought that I would learn the meaning of a gospel, but that didn't happen. No, you didn't. But as discussed in the beginning, it's not easy to define the gospel. Even after we finish this program, it will be hard to define it using one word or a phrase. But I feel that in my heart, there will be understanding. With that understanding in our hearts, if we believe that the gospel is the good news, then we will understand what that really means. Yes, I hope that we take the time together to understand as we study and think about what gospel is, the good news of the gospel. Today, during the, our first meeting, we discussed how bad and sad news must come before the good news. We also discussed how God, the creator of time, who is not affected by time and always living in the present, has a reason for beginning all his work, knowing all of God's characteristics and qualities. We should not only ask, knowing what would happen at the end. Why did he begin all this? We should know that God must have a reason for beginning all this, especially since He knows what will happen. I am looking forward to what we'll be studying by looking at Genesis. Yes, 
Thank you for listening to our program today, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. This ends our program, The Good News of the Gospel. See you next time. Yes, see you next time. were influenced by the foreigners in their group that showed greed towards food and began to act in accordance with them. This leads to the Israelites complaining to God for saving them from slavery and getting punished from God. There are times in our own lives where we get influenced by the worldly things around us, leading us to make the wrong decisions. The world tries to sugarcoat things and influences us by saying things like, how can you live your life not doing the things that everyone else is doing? Don't you miss that thing you used to do before Jesus came into your life? I'm sure that even God will look the other way at times. This can lead us to complain about our faith and start to question our Christian life. There are times that unexplainable bad things happen to us And we ask God, how can you allow something like this to happen to me? 
and we begin to think that life was easier when we did not have to depend on God and wish we had total control over our own lives. What about you? Do you sometimes long for the things from your own Egypt? For the old life that we had before we met God? We must look at the conversations that we have had with others. Are they about thanking and praising God and helping each other to live a more holy life? We have to make sure that our conversations are not full of complaints and yearning for the old life. We should not be missing all the worldly things that we once had in our lives, a longing for the things from our own Egypt. My hope is that all of us can live our lives only listening to the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ and to turn our ears away from the temptations of the world. I also hope that other people's bad emotions are not transferred onto us, but that we are able to transfer the joy of the good news of heaven to others, and that others will be cheered and encouraged as they see Christ in us. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I look forward to speaking to all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week, and God bless. Troubled time.